Hey, Caitlin Duty, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hey there. Thank you for having me. We are really excited to have you. And in addition to being excited to having uh, a really powerful medical professional in Caitlin Duty um, joining us today, I am also joined by my good friend, Claire Dalton, who has actually an announcement to make to our community. Actually, I'm going to make it on our behalf. Claire is starting her own podcast, folks. And I just wanted everybody to know that um, not only are we bringing folks on to join us as guest co-hosts here at Tick Bootcamp, but we're also hoping to inspire people to start their own podcast so we can have a lot of voices in this podcasting community. And Claire has shared with us that she's taking us up and she is starting her own podcast. So Claire, thank you for joining me today and thank you for um, starting uh, your own podcast venture. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm super excited and thanks for giving me an opportunity to practice interviewing because I definitely need that. If you guys are interested in checking out my podcast, it's called The Clarity Podcast, and you can find me on any major podcasting site. Thank you, Claire. So, Caitlin Duty, talk to us about uh, your background. My background. So, I always love the question of like, where are you from? That's a really common background question, right? And it always stumps me because I... I just say I was born in Ohio. I grew up in Virginia. I went to high school in New Hampshire. Then I went to college in Connecticut, then college in New York. And now I live in Connecticut. So that's where I'm from. Yeah. And, <laughs> and of course, part of the reason why people want to know where you're from is because they want to get a sense of, you know, how likely is it that you're going to come in contact with ticks, right? Because, you know, everybody, no matter where they are, are going to come in contact with ticks. But those of us on the East Coast, especially all the places you've lived, oh, you're yeah. in the line belt. You aren't going to come and gather with ticks. It's almost like, what a shock. We have somebody like <laughs> Caitlin who's lived in all these places on a Lyme disease podcast. Now, you know, so um, I guess you're not shocked that you're on this podcast, are you? I'm not shocked that I'm on this podcast. No, but I'm thankful to be on this podcast. I have to tell you, I love podcasts. And we 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 love podcasts too. We love all the people <laughs> kind enough to share their their journeys with uh, other folks so that they can have a shorter journey. And, 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 and let's, again, so let's talk a little bit about all these different places that you grew up in and, um, and um, what was it that you thought you were going to do with your life as a young gal who, who was growing up in various parts of the line belt? Ah, so throughout my, um, my early childhood through the line belt, I spent a lot of time, you know, outdoors. I played a lot of sports. I particularly, was highly involved in dance. Um, so as I went through high school, you know, I was very serious about dancing and um, danced at like really top tier kind of places. Um, I ended up going to college for ballet before I was a nurse practitioner, which is what I do now. But um, right before going to college, I had a very large knee injury uh, which kind of actually was the first time that I was ever interested in healthcare at all. It was my first foray, like through the medical system, um, you know, interacting with medical doctors, requiring a surgery, going through physical therapy. And I thought to myself, as I was, you know, preparing to go to school for dance, I was like, oh, this other thing over here, this physical therapy is pretty cool. So it kind of gave me like my first sidestep into like a little medical interest, but I ended up going off to college. You know, I completed the degree in, in ballet and um, that just basically landed me right in nursing school. <laughs> well, so is, is it, isn't it interesting that the elite 
performance athlete uh, who thought she was going to be a professional dancer or, or, or certainly have a career in dance uh, was not consistent with God's plan for her. And she found herself first getting injured and having some experiences with an injury and then ultimately finding herself back into, uh, into uh, the medical profession. So um, why did you resist medicine despite having that, that calling after your uh, first knee injury? You know, it's an interesting question, and it's one that I have thought about, you know, over the years. And I can't really say that I know I know why. I think that at 18 years old, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I didn't have enough life experience probably to make such a large shift in kind of what I knew myself to be, right? So a lot of my identity at the time was kind of wrapped up in, um, you know, dancing. So I... I didn't know what it would look like on the other side, you know, to do something totally different. All right. So talk to us about what the experience was like uh, when you had that knee injury and what was it that was ins inspirational about that initially that you ignored and went back to uh, the dance <laughs> experience. But what, what was it about that experience that, that was inspirational for you to at least at that time, think about a pivot in your career path? Yeah, I mean, I think the injury itself was really shocking, you know, because at 17, I was probably 17 when I got injured, you know, 18 by the end of it when I'm headed to school. But, you know, I think the injury itself was just really shocking. It was probably the first time I realized I wasn't invincible. It was the first time I realized, you know, I have a physical body, right? Like, because when you're young, sometimes you don't realize, you know, that you could break or that something unexpected could happen, right? So, um, it was just kind of jarring. I don't know if that answers the question. No, it doesn't answer the question. And, yeah. and it was, so you, you became more aware of your physical body. You became more aware of what trauma was. You became more right. aware of, 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 of the emotional elements of, of, of having an experience like this, right? You, you were just, you were not indestructible either physically or emotionally. Correct. Um, Talk to us about uh, talk to us about what your experience was with doctors and healthcare professionals, and why that was or wasn't inspirational for you to make the uh, the career pivot at that point. So I would say the experience going through the knee injury was actually, um, aside from you know the regular pain and discomfort and long rehabilitation process, it was a fairly positive one. It felt um, hopeful. I felt supported, you know, by the medical community. I felt uh, encouraged by the surgeon to have the surgery. I felt like, you know, my physical therapist was my own personal cheerleader, which was really cool. Um, and so it felt like a genuinely positive experience, which is why I thought, wow, this is really kind of cool, right? Then, you know, fast forward, taking that injured knee then on the road into college where I'm dancing on it, you know, pretty rigorously, you know, hours every day. And that was difficult, right? So I rehabbed it to a point, but I hadn't, you know, it takes time to really, really recoup to that kind of top performance level. So the first year or so of school was um, definitely challenging, but I really kind of felt like I had that internal drive at that point to be like, oh, I'm not going to let this get me. I'm going to get on top of it. I'm going to get over it. And I'm just going to push through it. Yes, it hurts. Yes, I feel weak, but I'm just going to like push, push, push. And I did. And I got there and I felt like I was able to really recuperate um, to a top performance level. 
the interesting was, thing was that kind of when I hit that point, I actually had um, kind of a bizarre illness uh, that required me to have um, an emergency stomach surgery in the middle of, of this college experience. So then I was kind of out again. The emergency stomach surgery was um, traumatic in a way physically, but it was also traumatic emotionally, which is not necessarily what I had experienced with the knee injury. So the stomach surgery is kind of a mystery. I still don't even know to this day exactly what happened, but I remember I went to the emergency room with stomach pain. While I was in the emergency room, I laid, you know, basically in a bed in an excruciating amount of pain and um, medical providers, you know, came to see me and evaluated me and had all sorts of testing and things done. Nobody could really find anything wrong with me. And so they said, uh, you know, we might just discharge you home. And I was like, I can't, like, there's no way, like, there's no way I'm in excruciating pain. So they started saying to me, like, well, if you're in that much pain, then you can just sit here overnight and we'll see how things are in the morning. And they started talking about, you know, whether or not I was a drug seeking teenager, which was a really bizarre thing for me. It was not what was going on. I was in an excruciating amount of pain. I was not drug seeking. In the morning, there was a decision made to basically have an emergency surgery and explore what was going on inside of me. While they were exploring what was going on inside of me, sorry, I'm, you know, hopefully this is not too graphic, but they, they ended up uh, damaging my bladder. So I came out of surgery with, I don't know what happened, but I know that I had a damaged bladder, but I didn't know I had a damaged bladder for about 24 hours and I started going septic. So I started getting extremely, extremely ill. So the challenging part was that I was telling the nurses and, and people, doctors, whoever, probably, you know, the person who brought me my food, I was telling the person who changed my garbage, I was telling like, Anybody who came in my room, I was basically like, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm not okay. I wasn't able to use the bathroom, right? Like things that you're supposed to do like after a surgery. Um, it took them about a day to like really believe me that I was not okay. And that was the very first instance of severe trauma that I went through in the medical field. So I ended up on the other side of this surgery you know, having a bladder repair and all of these things, um, which was very intense for somebody who's like a college student dancing, you know, like this was a really, really intense procedure and process to go through. But I ended up on the other side of it, but I was completely traumatized. Now, the interesting thing about this trauma is that you can either kind of run from trauma or you can run like straightforward into it, or you can kind of freeze, right? Like there's all these different kind of phases. For me, I had the reaction of like, you know, gosh, I can't believe that these people didn't believe me when I was telling them what was going on. I should be a medical provider because I would never do that to anybody. And that was the feeling that I had. And it was like, back again on that circle, right? The first circle was thinking like, wow, physical therapy is so cool. I love this physical medicine thing, the science thing. And then boom, a second trauma. And then that like propelled me to think I should do this because I would never not believe somebody. I would never tell somebody that they were lying or that they were just drug seeking or that, you know, you name it, the things that were said to me. 
So it, it put me back on that path again, looking at it and saying like, wow, I really think that I should be a nurse. All right. So now give us the next step in the story. So you, 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 um, you know, you, you are offered an opportunity earlier in your life to make the pivot to the place God made you to be. And you decided you were going to be a dancer. <laughs> and then you had a second opportunity to go to where uh, you were supposed to be. Um, and this was a much more traumatic experience because the first time you had uh, an experience in the acute care system, and our acute care system is pretty good, right? Generally yeah. works, you know, yeah. break a bone. They're they're pretty good at fixing it, right? Yeah. Pardon me. Yeah. I lived. I lived. It, I lived right? through it. Right. Yeah. So it's so all all of the all of the you know all of the lies that our culture tells us about the medical system actually were were uh, were supported in your mind. You go to a doctor. The doctor diagnoses you. The doctor treats you. You get better. You move on with your life until you have the second experience where now you're not seeing, um, you know, you're not seeing the, you know, the the lies that were taught. You're now starting to see that it's a, it's a flawed system, right? Um, and the flawed system, unfortunately, not only results in you having a, a, it seems like a more severe injury than you went in with. Yes. Um, so you were physically traumatized. But you're now also emotionally traumatized because you're repeatedly gaslit by the medical professionals who are supposed to be listening to you and believing you and trying to help you to get to a diagnosis. So how does that change you, first of all? And does it ultimately cause you to make the pivot that you hadn't made into studying uh, uh, the medical system and becoming a medical professional? Yeah, so it did. I mean, it definitely inspired me. I was still in school for dance. And, you know, I'm one of those people that, you know, for good or bad, when I say I'm going to do something, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to finish it. So I finished up that Bachelor of Fine Arts um, and, you know, got through with that. And then as soon as I was through with that, it was immediately starting to search for what do I do next? And I went back to looking between physical therapy and nursing. And I, I literally wasn't even sure, right? Because I'm so far removed from like what these things actually are. I wasn't really sure what to choose or which direction to go. So I actually just looked at jobs. I was like, let me just look up jobs and like, what are job requirements? And how does the job description sound? And I looked at nurses, I looked at nurse practitioners and I looked at physical therapists. And I read the description for a nurse practitioner and I was like, that's so cool. That is definitely me. That's totally what I want to do. And I was like, oh, but I should be a nurse first. Like I should figure out this nursing thing first before I go become a nurse practitioner. And so that's the, that's kind of what launched me back into nursing school. So yeah, the Bachelor of Fine Arts basically just got me to, to the nursing degree. <laughs> All right. So you, you have a bachelor's degree. I'm assuming you're now going to pursue a master's degree in uh, in nursing or, or, or were you pursuing I did a your second, second bachelor's. bachelor's? It was a second right. bachelor's in, in nursing. Yep. So I went to the College of Mount St. Vincent, which is an old time nursing school in the Bronx, yep. which was very cool. It's a beautiful campus. And um, they still have nuns there teaching microbiology. And it's very cool. So... I went to nursing school there. It was a, a very good experience. You know, I got to do all of my nursing rotations like in the city hospitals, um, which is a great way to learn 
you'll kind sure of see so, every so you see everything. Just for our national and international listeners, you are in now the Bronx, New York City, uh, the uh, the borough that's home of the New York Yankees, uh, and um, and you're now you're now going to nursing school and you're working in inner city hospitals in New York City. Yeah. And while I was in nursing school, I worked as a nursing attendant because I really wanted to get a hands-on feel for working with patients. You know, even though at the end of the day, I was working towards working with patients, I wanted to work with patients right away. So as I went to school, I worked as a nursing attendant at um, New York Presbyterian Columbia, which is a, you know, top tier hospital in New York City, again, um, and loved it, loved working with patients, loved, you know, providing care, loved talking with people and visiting with people and, you know, providing them with what I could offer. Um, so graduate nursing school and then move on to working with patients. And I initially started working in a neurology unit. I was really fascinated by the brain, you know, so it was interesting. My, my thoughts on where I wanted to work as a nurse was really between working in psychology or working in neurology. All right. So let's, let's sort of tie this together at this stage in your, in your, in your journey. So you, you, you have this um, experience where you're into your knee mm -hmm. as a college student. Uh, you have a good experience as a, um, as a patient. You then have a, a second experience uh, later on in your career as a student. Uh, and you don't have a positive experience. Um, and you're starting to see some of the some of the flaws of in the medical system. You now pivot over. You're 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 uh, earning your second bachelor's degree in nursing, and you're also working in the field. And are you starting to see um, you know some more of the flaws that you didn't realize existed during your first experience? And um, and were you sort of now looking at this from the patient's perspective? And do you think that was allowing you to be a better practitioner um, when you were going through that uh, stage of your um, of your learning experience? Yeah. So I think, you know, as a new nurse, I definitely felt the patient experience, right? I understood it from the perspective of being somebody who has sat in a hospital bed, who has been sick, who has been through surgery. Um, and I think that it made me compassionate for my patients. I think that it gave me patience to listen to what they had to say. I think that, you know, I had empathy as well for what they were going through. Um, and it drove me to do the best job that I could every day when I walked in the hospital, right? These are long shifts, 12 hour shifts. I worked overnights as a new grad it was not easy, right? But I had a lot of motivation to do the best job that I could every single day and to provide, you know, the best care. And seeing the flaws in the system was tricky. As a new nurse working at large university hospitals, you have, you know, kind of top of the line, cutting edge stuff, you know, that you're looking at all the time. So I don't know that I had the depth of knowledge, you know, in terms of what was going on, what I was seeing and experiencing, you know, and I was really in very much of a learning phase at that point. So I don't know that I recognized 
um, from a care perspective, the flaws as much in the system at that point. But what about what about when you were working with other doctors and other nurses and other healthcare professionals? Did you see any of those people treating patients the way you had been treated when you were having the bad experience, where yeah. you were accusing people of seeking drugs or uh, or malingering or any of the other things that were done to you when you were gaslit? Yeah, I would say I had seen it. It wasn't rampant, like it wasn't every interaction, right? And a lot of the time when you're working as a nurse, you're not always working, you know, in conjunction with another nurse at bedside, taking care of a patient at the same time, having, you know, those private conversations with multiple providers at the same time. So I don't know that I, I, I saw it on a regular basis. Did I ever see it? I would say yes. Did I see it on a regular basis? No. But in the cases where you did see it, because I'd like folks on this podcast to get some insight into this, what do you think was the cause of these folks uh, who were engaging in the behavior that was causing this emotional trauma to um, to the people they were gaslighting? You know, I don't know that there's ever a good reason for a medical provider to talk to a patient or to gaslight them. I don't know that there's anything that you can say is causing that specifically, you know, well, Kevin, I, I think there is, right. I mean, let, let me, let me oh, challenge okay. you on this because I, I agree with you. There's never a good reason for it, but it's happening. So what right. is going on in the environment or what's going on in the, in the practitioner's head that's causing them to feel like it's okay to not believe someone they're charged with believing and diagnosing. Is it burnout? Is it, is it working too many hours? Is it in some cases just a bad day? I mean, what are what are the circumstances that were coming together with some of your colleagues that you were observing? And I I, I appreciate yeah. that it's not rampant, but you know, if you're you only have you know one body, you only have right. one experience, and if you're if you're the person that just happens to be the one out of ten times it's happening, it's happened hundred percent of the time to you, right? And you're Absolutely. you're having that experience. So when you were observing that, what were the circumstances that you think were causing these people to engage in that? in that inappropriate behavior. I think certainly burnout could be one of those things on the list, right? And then there's also the concept of moral injury, right? Healthcare providers suffering from moral injury. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And I'm not an I'm expert not. on moral injury. Um, I can try to sum it up for you best I can that, you know, providers are um, asked to do a job that they don't feel comfortable with morally and somebody's probably going to write in and give you a better definition for what moral injury injury really is. But like, let's say you have, um, 10 nurses that are supposed to be staffed on a unit and only seven show up and they've got to work under protest and they are strapped and they're not going to be able to, you know, whatever, take their breaks, you know, eat food, go to the bathroom, and, you know, they're being asked to pass, you know, a huge amount of meds and do lots of, you know, screenings and things. And, and they've got to start to make choices like, you know, can I get to this patient in time for this med or, you know, how do I justify I've got to be two places at once, but I can't. So they start to develop moral injury where they cannot moralistically provide what it is that they need to, you know, because of barriers or things. And so it puts them in a bad position personally, right? Where then they've got to go be face front with somebody who's, you know, having the worst day of their life while they're dealing with a moralistic issue themselves. 
Yeah, you I know, this that. is this is actually a really interesting topic. I actually made for, I, I was became friends this year with a surgeon and we started talking about this because you get a Lyme disease person and a surgeon together and yeah. you know, you start talking about medical things. And yeah. you know, I asked him, I was like, is your job really hard? Like like how do you emotionally respond to everything that's going on with your job? And he his answer was honestly, we all develop like a really dark sense of humor because we're around suffering. 24 seven. And because we're around suffering 24 seven, we have a really hard time dealing with it and a really hard time coping with it. And so my response to him was, well, just remember the people you're with are probably having the worst day of their lives too. So <laughs> we need to all be more compassionate, more caring, more empathetic. Um, but it was really interesting to hear his perspective on the side of the medical professional, whereas I've been on the side of the medical trauma, like you, Caitlin. Right. So very interesting to see that perspective. Right. And there's also, you know, the fact that people can become desensitized, right? So if you have enough exposure to a stimulus over and over again, you know, without consequence, you know, to it, then the sensitization becomes less. So if you have patients screaming every night in pain, your response to screams become less, right? It's the same thing. They've done the studies with like call bells, for example, in a hospital, you know, you hear the call bell going off and off and off. And over time, the response rates can be lower, right? So you have to, as a healthcare provider, you have to kind of check yourself and say like, am I on top of my game? Have I taken care of myself today? Have I done all the things that I need to do to be able to walk in here and be responsive and be able to provide the care that patients need? Because that's ultimately the job, right? That's the responsibility of the healthcare provider. You know, it's it's not an office job where you can be having an off day and sitting in a quiet, you know, space by yourself, just firing emails off, right? Not that those jobs aren't hard too. Of course they are, but they may not be front facing with people who are having the worst days of their lives. Oh yeah, totally. You even see that amongst caregivers versus Lyme disease people. You know, my parents are my caregivers and, you know, now when I'm throwing up, they're just like, you okay, Claire? Whereas before it was like, let's run and help Claire, but they're just so desensitized to it because you know, we've been puking in our family for 10 years now from oh. this disease that it's just normal, you know? So you definitely see that desensitization and things we all have to be aware of and to be taking care of ourselves. So Caitlin, it's so interesting hearing your story because it's very actually similar to my story in that my health problem started with stomach issues as well. And that's where a lot of my traumatic experiences in the medical system happened as well, because um, as I grew older, my stomach issues spread to my reproductive system and I had intense pain and the medical doctors didn't even believe me. And it was always just an issue of, well, you must be pregnant or something like that. And so I really relate to your story and I think that's incredible. So tell me a little bit about your journey going into the Lyme world and tell me what happened when you got Lyme disease. Were you bit by a tick? Is that how you started your Lyme journey? Yeah. So it's interesting how I got introduced to Lyme disease. You know, it was definitely not in the way that I think I would have thought I would come across Lyme disease. I was working as an infusion specialist driving from house to house, you know, in the Hudson Valley, which is in kind of like New York, Connecticut area, a little bit upstate, you know, outside of New York City, like at least an hour plus outside of New York City. And I was driving house to house and I was doing different types of infusions for patients. And I just, I literally just love talking to patients. Like I just love to sit there and talk to them and 
learn about them. And I was in their home, which is like such an amazing thing to be like inside of a patient's home. Like you just get such a different perspective on the patient versus when you're with a patient who's in a hospital bed, right? So I'm in their homes, I'm talking with them and over and over and over again, they're telling me that they have chronic illness. They're telling me that they have neuropathy. They're telling me that they have neuropsych. They're telling me that they have, you know, sudden onset, like arthritis. And they're telling me all of these things. And then the more I get to know them, they're telling me I was bit by a tick. They're telling me I had Lyme disease six months ago. They're telling me I have had Lyme disease for 20 years. And I start to learn like, oh my goodness, literally every single patient that I'm going to see has Lyme disease, has chronic Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. And I just, it flipped a switch in my brain. And I looked at my patients and I thought like, wow, something, something better has to be happening for these patients because they were getting treatment of some sort, but very often they were not being treated for their chronic Lyme disease. And they were very actively ill. And so it just, yeah, the light switch flipped in my brain. And I was like, wow, this is a population of people who desperately need providers who desperately need someone to care for them. Um, so that's how I first got introduced to it. That's how I first uh, started working with patients. Now, in terms of, I think you also asked if I was bit by a tick yes. and the answer, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. I was bit by a tick. The tick bite, I didn't find the tick bite. So, you know, this is a a story of like hindsight's 2020, right? right? I was at a wedding in New Hampshire and I'm in the wedding party and, you know, we'd all been taking pictures and I'm waiting to walk into the reception. And the person that I was walking with said to me, hey, you've got ticks all over your dress. And I was like, what? Now, mind you, I was already working as a Lyme provider at this point. I was already treating. I nearly ripped that dress off. Yeah, I think outside. I would too. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I did. So I basically, you know, got checked from head to toe, you know, in front of everybody in the parking lot, you know, on the side of the road <laughs> in New Hampshire in the middle of summer, uh, had an instant panic attack, you know, but then they basically announced and they were like, you got to go in. So I like ran in did the entrance like yeah and like basically danced right out the back door right back to the parking lot where I could continue you know checking myself never found a tick bite did a hundred tick checks that night did a hundred tick checks the next day did a hundred tick tick, tick checks the day after that I can't even say it there's too many (laughs) tick checks that I did never found a tick At the same time as I was having this going on, I was also going through a root canal. Now, probably a week after this wedding, I had a swollen lymph node behind my ear. I went back to the dentist and I said, hey, do you think that this could be my root canal? Do you think I could have a swollen lymph node for my root canal? And in my head, I'm thinking like, is there something happening? Is there something going on? you know, like the wheels are starting to turn. And he thought, you know what? Yeah, it could be your root canal. I said, you know, can I just go on antibiotics? Like, what could I do? He said, yeah, here, do a Z-pack, took the Z-pack, lymph node went down, felt better, kept working on the root canal. Nothing's really going on. Six to eight weeks later, all of a sudden I'm at work at the end of the day, 
I'm going to leave to go home. And I just feel like, huh, that's a really funny sensation on my face. And I walk into the bathroom to look at my face because I'm thinking to myself as I'm walking in, I go, okay, I'm either having a stroke, which is highly unlikely because I'm not very old and I don't have a lot of, you know, comorbid things to be having a stroke. I said, or I might be developing a Bell's palsy. So I walk into the bathroom and I see that I'm starting to develop a Bell's palsy. It was very, very early. It was very faint. I literally felt like just the very first beginning of uh, numbness, but kind of between like where your nose is and where your top lip is. And there's a fold there and it was just flattening. So when I smiled, it didn't really crease there, but I could still smile. I could still use my eye, right? Because a lot of times it's a full, you know, one-sided paralysis. I really admire your ability to ask so many questions to yourself. Like when I was going through my Lyme disease journey, I was a teenager. So all my health problems, I was like, whatever, this is normal. My hands shake all the time. No problem. Like just like most people just space through these things that happen to them and they don't ever take time to ask questions. And it sounds like because you caught it, you caught it early because you asked so many questions and you were so aware of yourself and what was going on. And that's really admirable because that is not something that I did on my Lyme disease journey. So what next? So what did you do when you saw the Bill's palsy starting? So it's interesting you say that I'm so aware because I think about this story and I think to myself like, wow, I feel really silly now. Like I had this huge lymph node. I had been covered in ticks. Like why did I not just treat then, right? Like right. I think about that and I kind of kick myself sometimes and I think like, why didn't you just treat? Like you you know enough to know like these were the warning signs. You already had warning signs of Lyme disease, you know, then. But the warning signs were very vague, right? Like kind of like mm-hmm. you said, you're kind of blowing through some things that are like maybe not so in your face. So now, now that it was in my face because it was on my face and my face was flattening out on the one side, I, you know... I did what everybody does. I went into patient mode because I stopped asking questions and I went, oh my God, I have Lyme disease. This is a Bell's palsy. I ran straight to my primary care office. Okay. When I get to my primary care office, I basically just walked in and said, you have to see me right now. I'm having a Bell's palsy. Like this needs to be dealt with immediately. I walk in to see my primary care and he looks at me and he looks at my face and he's like looking at me and he says, huh, I it just kind of looks like you had a Restylane injection on one side, spray some saline in that nostril and you'll be fine. I left there and I have to tell you, I was like, well, I guess this is it. I guess I just have to treat myself. Nobody's going to treat me like that's it. Like, you know, kind of like throw the gloves down, like it's on now. Right. So I basically, I started treating myself immediately. I knew what it was. I then saw one of my colleagues another nurse practitioner who ordered some blood testing and everything for me and went through the full workup. And I did, I had a CDC positive IgG early disseminated positive for Lyme. I know that that was new because I had done, you know, being a Lyme provider, every once in a while I would test myself for Lyme and I never had, never, ever had a, a band, not even a single band on a Western blot. And I'm talking like, this was just a quest test. Like this was just quick because I just wanted to do what was fast. Like, let me just do a fast Western blot. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
yeah, it was CDC positive. That was it. So it was game on. It was time to treat. It was time to get serious about, you know, basically taking care of it. So, you know, would you say that's early? I think a lot of people would might say that that's early, right? But again, it was disseminated by that point. So it's not so early that there were no symptoms. I already had neurologic impact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something to to kind of think about. So in that moment, when I got that CDC positive test, it literally struck panic into me. So I immediately felt terrified. I was like, oh my God. And then I looked back and I thought, I had the lymph node. I had like a couple of days where I felt a little funky. I felt better after the Zithromax. Lymph node went down, but then I felt a little funky again. Why didn't I do something about that? Like I should have known better, right? And I felt really silly for a long time. And there was a long time where patients would ask me like, did you ever have Lyme? Have you had Lyme disease? And I would just be like, oh yeah. But like, I wouldn't want to tell anybody what had happened because I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I missed it. But it can be easy to miss, right? Yeah. It is so admirable that you caught it actually. Like it's not silly. Like after everything I've been through, I think it's so admirable because there is a problem in society where people are denying that they're sick because they want to fit in with the culture. And if you're sick, very few people want to be around you. That's just kind of how it goes. So people deny and they deny and they deny and they don't get the help they need and they don't get the help they need because that will make them different. It won't make people like them. At least I see this a lot in my culture and I'm in Utah, so it's probably very different in other states. But across the board, I see people not wanting to be around people who are sick. And so we just deny, but you're like, I know what's happening and I'm going to get right on it. And that is so admirable because healthcare should be preventing sickness, not, you know, dealing with it when it's so bad that we're dying, you know? So I think that's, that's incredible. So tell us a little bit about some of the things that you did to treat your Lyme. Yeah. So I used, um, you know, so I'm an allopathic provider, you know, by training, right? So I used antibiotics, you know, I did what everybody, not everybody, I did what a lot of people do. I started with doxycycline, right? Very Mm -hmm. basic, you know, it's like Lyme 101, you know, doxycycline is often the first stop. So, you know, I did, I think I did a month of doxycycline. I threw Zithromax in there with it as well. So I did the two together. Um, and I also took, um, oregano, like a liposomal formula of oregano. And I also took another herbal called monolaurin. So I took, you know, combination of herbs and, um, antibiotics. And I probably did that for at least, at least a month. Now to me, I knew that I was not going to just stop at treatment there. So here's, here's the really interesting thing. After that month, I felt better. So here's the scary thing. I felt better than I had in like 10 years. So then I was like, oh no, this is whacked out because I've had something for probably a very long time. And I had some very mild symptoms that now I've treated. And I, it wasn't maybe necessarily this case of Lyme, but there was something going on that I had chronically. I don't know what it was. So when I treated, I didn't feel hundred percent. I felt 110%. And I was like, oh boy, now, now I've really got to dig in here and find out, you know, what's going on. 
I did more testing of things. I didn't find anything else specific, but I went on and continued to treat because I knew that in my experience and in patients that I see, you know, relapsing just after that first four weeks or so, you know, could be fairly high. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to treat myself like I would a patient and I would recommend to continue some treatment. So I did what's called pulsed therapy, which means going on and off of antibiotics in rounds. And so I would do like two week rounds of, you know, kind of like an antibiotic herbal combo of sort, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, two weeks off. I was looking for things like Herxheimer type reactions, you know, while I was on. And then, so Herxheimer would be like a worsening of symptoms um, before they get better, you know, hopefully when I would get off. So then I, when I would come off, I would say like, okay, where's my baseline now? Um, so I used things like, you know, doxycycline. I tried tetracycline. I did fluconazole um, and then herbs, you know, including like oregano and monolaurin, Japanese knotweed. Um, trying to remember what else. Cryptoleptus. I saw a naturopath during this during this uh, journey as well, um, which was hugely helpful working with a, a naturopath. Um, so I probably did a good six to eight rounds of antibiotics. And then after the antibiotics, I probably maintained herbal treatment for maybe another six to eight months. Um, and that got me most of the way there. That got me most of the way there. So did you find that you had a lot of Herxheimer reactions or what were your Herxheimers? Cause you caught it early. What were they like? Did you even have any? I didn't. I, well, it's hard to say. So like I had, I had a very bizarre reaction to tetracycline and I don't know if that was technically a Herxheimer type reaction. I saw an allergist. I thought maybe it was a type of allergy, but basically I would take tetracycline and get fevers. Mm. And I took it three times and the fevers kept coming sooner and sooner and sooner. Like, I mean, 102 fever, like really disgusto, like, you know, mm-hmm. you're like a wet rag in the bed type fever. Sure. So, um, so I don't, you know, I don't know if that was a Herxheimer type reaction. I didn't revisit it. I didn't try to treat through it because I found that there were other things that were working for me and I was feeling well. Um, so sometimes you have to make a choice with treatment, right? Like, you know, do you push yourself so hard through treatment just to find out just because, or do you say, you know what, there's other things that are working for me right now and that's okay too, right? Right. There's no, yeah. there's no 100% right or wrong. Um, but there's a series of choices that you can make, right? Oh yeah. I think a lot of us Lyme patients learn that exact lesson. Every yeah. single one of us at some point, we have to learn it. So I want to ask you questions about trauma, about medical trauma and mm-hmm. what part did that play in this journey? Because you talked about how you had medical trauma when you had your stomach yeah. issues and your surgery. So tell me about what part that played in this journey and if your medical trauma was affecting everything you were going through while you were dealing with Lyme disease? Yeah, it's a good question. And I would say I definitely was affected by my medical trauma. So trauma is one of those things that um, can just stay with you, right? So the first knee trauma kind of primed the pump, right? In a way where I developed, you know, probably a new neural pathway for the body and brain to kind of just get on track and say like, boom, there you are, you know, here's your trauma, right? 
then I have that second stomach surgery and it was like, yep, we know that pathway. Here's your trauma again. And then I get that positive, you know, Lyme test and knowing what I know and working with the patients that I work with, I was like, boom, here I am trauma again. Like that's it, you know? And I, I had that like strike of panic, you know, when I got that Lyme test, but I don't know that I initially recognized that I was really kind of like manifesting a lot of trauma type responses in, in my body, like physically in my body, right. Through my Lyme journey. But when I got to the end of treatment and I told you, I was feeling like 110%, it was like all of a sudden, you know, I was kind of like this fatigue type person a lot of the time. And it was like, oh my God, I don't have fatigue anymore. That's so weird. Like even to the point where my husband was like, who are you? Like, I've known you for so long. And like, all of a sudden you're not the tired one anymore. Like, this is weird. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> things changed in my life, like really. So, um, I got to the end of treatment and I really struggled with, and I think that some patients do struggle with this too, right? Like I really struggled with, am I as good as I'm going to be? Am I going to relapse? Am I okay? Like, how do I know that I'm okay? Like, the more I think about this, the dizzier I get, like, I feel like a little shaky, like, you know, around these thoughts and um, I feel anxious about it. So that was like my trauma kind of manifesting itself with like this just kind of quasi not feeling great type of thing, right? So I, I definitely physically was manifesting some trauma. Now, I ended up finding... Uh, a therapist and I recommend therapists all the time. You know, I think therapy can be very, very helpful in a lot of cases. Um, so I myself found a therapist and I said, you know, I got to get to work on this trauma because I went in basically saying like, look, I feel like a little physically uncomfortable and I can't tell, like, is this a Lyme symptom or is this trauma? Like, or is this, at first I thought it was just anxiety, right? I was like, okay, like I have anxiety. Okay. Who doesn't, right? No big deal. Deal with the anxiety, go see a therapist. Right. So I start working with this therapist and I'm realizing, you know, pretty intensely that this is my medical trauma. So I start digging back through and making the connections like, wow, I've been primed for many, many years and a long, long time now to be traumatized. Right. So I started doing EMDR. I don't know if you know what that is. Yeah. Why don't you explain to our audience what EMDR is? So oh they know. Boy. Okay. Hopefully I do a good job. So EMDR is a type of therapy. So it's eye movement, desensitization, and repurposing. You can do it with your eyes. You can also do it using bilateral or unilateral sounds that alternate. You can do it using tapping. So, you know, if you're a person who can't track side to side quickly, you can do it with headphones. You can do it with physical tactile touch as well. What you do um, during EMDR is you usually bring up the traumatic event and you start to kind of unpack, you know, these memories and then you process them or think about them while doing this, you know, side to side movement with the eyes or the sound or the tapping, right? And what that basically does is it reduces the um, kind of like 
like the way that I think about it is, or the way that it worked for me, I guess I should say, is that it reduced the bite of these trauma events. So like my traumatic events used to be very vivid. I used to not be able to talk about them without crying or like clamming up or feeling anxious over them. And now I've done a lot of this um, EMDR processing and they feel like they don't feel sharp anymore. They feel dull. They feel rounded and they feel like I can recall them, but it doesn't have to be so vivid, right? They're a little bit muted. Okay. So it didn't like erase my memory or anything, but they're just not sharp. Does that, Mm -hmm. does that answer the question? Yes, that totally makes sense. As I've been healing from trauma on my own journey, it's like all of a sudden you wake up one day after having like panic attacks over these things in your head. And then one day you wake up and a trigger comes and you can handle it. And you're like, oh my goodness, something amazing just happened with healing because I've been panicking over like this tiny little trigger for years and now it's gone. So yes, I totally totally relate to that. That Was there anything else that you did to help with your trauma that that you found that helped you a lot? I found the EMDR to be the most helpful um, in taking really like the bite out of those triggers, right? Like exactly like you said. So for me, just closing up that line experience of being like, okay, like, oh, I turned the other day and I felt a little dizzy for a second. Like, is that my Lyme? And then it was like, you know, I was able to take kind of those triggers and remove them. And and then I realized that I really was stable. I really was okay. And was able to accept that I had done as much treatment as I needed at that time. And that if I needed to go back to treatment, I had the tools and the ability to do it. So, so Caitlin, I'd like to uh, step in here for a second and, and join the conversation because you're talking about one of my favorite topics. Uh, and that is, uh, that is um, the impact that trauma has on, um, on your neurology and the impact that it has on your vulnerability. And the question that I wanna ask you is, well, I, I think I, I'd like to build off for our audience one thing, which is um, you're either going to have the sympathetic or parasympathetic expression of your nervous system, right? The sympathetic being fight or flight, the parasympathetic expression being rest or digest in very general terms. Um, and we know that what happened to you during the course of your life is that you had these traumatic experiences, uh, which as you explained, had developed um, these traumatic neural pathways, which made you much more, made made your triggers much more sensitive. And my question to you is, do you believe that you are more vulnerable to Lyme disease as a result of the past traumas and the neural pathways that had developed from the past traumas and therefore made your immune system less capable of managing the bugs that ultimately caused you, I don't mean the bug that bit you, but the bugs that were spit into you um, more likely to make you sick. I think it's certainly possible. I don't know that I could ever answer that question 100% for sure, but I think it certainly is a possibility, right? Um, I can't remember the studies off the top of my head, but there are studies that show you know, high levels of PTSD can be just immunosuppressive, right? So even like measuring PTSD, certain scales will say that, you know, if the PTSD is at this particular level, it could be immunosuppressive, right? So I, yeah. I think it's more than I think it's more than it can be. I think the studies have definitively demonstrated that when we we are in the 
we're in the sympathetic expression of our nervous system. What's happening is everything's shutting down because we're in protect mode, right? We're in survival mode. And when we're in survival mode, actually, we can only do five things, right? It, you know, our, our digestive system shuts down, mm -hmm. our immune system shuts down, right? We're, we're either fighting, fighting, we're either fighting, fleeing, fainting, freezing, or fawning, right? So when we're in, you know, for, for folks who are suffering from PTSD, what's happening is they have, they have a constant, not only do they have very, very sensitive triggers, but they're they're constantly in that sympathetic expression of their nervous system, and it and it does create the stomach issues that the two of you were talking about in many cases. Why? Because your digestive system is being shut down, and of course, your your many people are getting very sick because they're you know because they're they're in that expression so often that uh, that their immune system is shut down, right? And right. that's that's part of what I wanted to build out with you because you know part of the story that you're developing here is that is that not only were you physically injured repeatedly, but you were also emotionally injured. And that when we are emotionally injured, we do need to make sure that we're treating both pieces of that. And what we found in this podcast, and I think certainly what I've seen during my life, is that people are less likely to get help for their emotional injuries than they mm. are for their physical injuries, right? And, you know, we we, we just don't have those experiences um, either either socially or educationally that help us to know when we should be getting help emotionally, right? If I cut my finger, I'll put a Band-Aid on, I'm not going to go to the doctor. If I have a really serious cut that requires me to get stitches, I know to get to the doctor and, and have the, you know, so we, we, we sort of know that we're going to, you know, there are going to be gradations of different types of physical injuries or illnesses where we're going to go to, um, you know, an allopathic doctor or, or a naturopathic doctor. But when we have emotional traumas, we don't have the same skills that we need to know when we can manage this on our own and when we can't manage it on our own and who are the professionals that we should be going to and how are they available. So, um, you know, Claire was building out with you, um, you know, this conversation about when you started to seek your, your, uh, your help from a mental health professional and why did you begin that process when you did? And do you believe perhaps you would have benefited had you had you began that process earlier? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would have benefited if I had, you know, started the process right after my knee injury, right? That would have hugely benefited me, you know, in giving me tools and, and things to work on, you know, with the original trauma, right? So... There was just one thing I wanted to just clarify in terms of what you had said, right? So you said that you're reading the research and saying that the trauma causes immune suppression. I think I, I just wanted to clarify in that I was saying that it could cause, right? So it's not always going to cause. So not every person who has a traumatic event necessarily oh, yeah. will be immune compromised. Well, did I say that? Because if I said that, I didn't mean to say that. I, oh, okay. what I, what I, what I was <laughs> or maybe I heard it is, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I, what I was arguing was that the, that when you're in the sympathetic expression of your nervous system, it's immunosuppressive, not the trauma, mm -hmm. because, you know, one person may suffer trauma and may get through it very easily and, 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 it, right. and it may not be triggering for them. Another person may have a different experience right? and a lot right. of that's going to be a lot of that's going to be driven by their neural pathways that they develop through the first 25 years of their lives you know where so much of who we are neurologically is built out um you know based on a brain that is designed primarily to keep us safe right right 
Yeah, I think agreed. it's actually a really interesting topic when you talk to Lyme disease people, because you'll find that most of the people who have been through really intense traumatic, traumatic experiences because of their illness, they it's, it's the emotions that are the last thing they've done everything mm -hmm. and they can't get well until they do the emotional work. I had no idea I had to do emotional work until I was like, I don't know, 23, 24. And I'd been through a lot of traumatic, traumatic experiences in my life. And so when I woke up one day and realized, you know, I'm really emotionally distraught, <laughs> maybe if I hit this, I'll get better the rest of the way. And then realize how many physical symptoms I'm having that are related to the emotions and are related to the trauma. Um, it's, it's the work that we have to put into to be able to get well. And I think Caitlin, you kind of saw that in your journey where you were like right. the pump was being primed and then it hits you. Oh, I got to do this work. And so I think that hits all of us exactly for what Rich just said. We don't realize we have to take care of our hearts. We have to take care of our emotions because if we don't, that can absolutely make us sicker. A week that I'm really struggling with the trauma, by the end of the week, I'm sick physically. I can't handle yeah. it anymore. And that's a super common pattern with Lyme people. And I'm sure, you know, Caitlin, in a way you can definitely relate to that. And you've probably seen it in lots of your patients. Yeah, I, that's, and that's part of the reason, like I said before, I, I feel like I recommend therapy a lot, you know, um, because you have to take your, emotions and your body and your mind and everything physically together right mm -hmm. um it doesn't necessarily all have to be treated in the same day but at some point right. you do need to get to it most people do yep so there, there is an there's another thing i wanted to talk with the two of you about and that is we we recently interviewed rachel leland um and uh and we talked with her about her her book um finding resilience and it's a brilliant book brilliant book she's a brilliant young woman She's actually the daughter of, uh, of Dorothy Lee, the president of LymeDisease.org. And uh, what, what happened with Rachel was she was actually still symptomatic until she went through her neural retraining. Yeah. So part of what we also have to talk about is not that, you know, we have to be in tune with our emotions and be aware of our emotions and treat our emotions when our emotions seem to be, um, you know, not serving us. But in many cases, there are people who have gone through the treatment of using antibiotics, for example, or whatever other, other kill protocols they want to use, and they're still symptomatic. And I think there is a subset of people who would who would test negative and still have symptoms. And that, that was certainly Rachel's experience. And it wasn't until she went through her neural retraining that her symptoms dissipated and she regained her life. So yeah. you know, it's, it's not just that you're not feeling well. You could still have the same exact symptoms you had before you treated because you are because your neurological system is continuing to respond to uh, the traumatic experience with the same exact symptoms. Right. And that's um, that's exactly what was happening to me at the very end was I had like a handful of things and I just thought to myself, you know, I've really hit this pretty good. You know, am I going to keep going in this direction to try to treat this thing or is this really like a trauma response and getting in with a therapist figuring out that a lot of this was very much a trauma response. I was able to kind of close that gap and finish off the treatment. So Caitlin, do you ever find that you have fear that it's going to come back, that, that you still sometimes have that traumatic response where the fear comes in and you're like, what if I get sick again? Or like, if you're exposed to ticks, what if this happens again? Do you ever experience things like that? Yeah, to a point, to a point I do, right. You know, 
the reality is I do still encounter ticks. You know, I, I live in Connecticut. I have dogs. You know, I walk my dogs. I go to the park. You know, so I I do still encounter ticks. You know, and I take all the preventative measures. I know, you know, now that I would have a very low threshold to treat myself again. You know, for a suspected tick bite or you know whatnot, or really for a tick bite. You know, if you you don't suspect the bites that you don't have, right? Yeah, but that's true. <laughs> So, um, and I have, you know, I had, a, I had a tick bite since then. Um, I was in New Jersey and I was bitten by a tick and I did, I treated myself for it and I did a lot of self-care and meditation <laughs> and a few therapy appointments and, um, thankfully knock on wood did not feel ill and haven't felt ill. That was a few years ago, but yeah. I do feel like, you know, like my hackles go up when I see ticks or if I think about like, oh, what's lurking in that brush as my dog's like trying to trail off and I'm like, you know, a little. Huh. Right. Yep. <laughs> so, Kelly, what, what is your what is your um, prophylaxis uh, protocol, if any, to deal with ticks? Uh, I'll, I'll just share with you what mine is mm. um, after after. Uh, I guess a tick bite that I had, uh, I mean, I, I get bitten by ticks all the time, right? I mean, I live on Long Island. I have dogs. I have ticks, you know, in and around where I live all the time. And I decided, I guess about two years ago, that I would I would start to take the Restore Kit, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Rawls's uh, Restore Kit. I, I actually take 50% of the Restore Kit every day because I know that I'm going to be coming in contact with ticks. I have concerns about taking antibiotics all the time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find a way of sort of striking the balance between prophylactically protecting myself and not having to be on antibiotics all the time. And as a result of uh, as a result of of now being on the restore kit, um, you know, what I what I did with my last tick bite last year is I actually did not take antibiotics prophylactically. I actually went on the full restore kit rather than rather than going on antibiotics. So give me a reaction to the way I'm dealing with. Um, you know, living in a tick endemic community and, and, and how I'm prophylactically dealing with that element of, of my concerns. Yeah. I think, you know, there's no 100% right way to do these things. So if you find a protocol that you feel comfortable with, that you, you know, feel like you've done your research, you've read up on it and you feel good about doing, then go for it, you know? I, I don't, you know, I don't have any, um, any qualms, you know, in terms of people trying to treat themselves for things. I typically, for patients who see me, I typically would prescribe antibiotic prophylactically. Um, you know, if I have a patient who's like really not wanting to take an antibiotic, I may recommend something like that, you know, that they could go look at, but it wouldn't be something that I would prescribe, right? They wouldn't see me for um, yeah, the no, Dr. Rawls Restore Kit, right? I, and look, I am not anti-antibiotic. I mean, we've had some folks on our social media accuse both me and Matt of being anti-antibiotic. And both of us have repeatedly been on antibiotics, Matt right. on, on IV antibiotics on two separate occasions. So we are, we are hardly anti-antibiotic, but I also think that we have to look at the tool and decide whether or not it's the best tool for us at any particular time. And, you know, and, yeah. and we do have to be aware of the impact that antibiotics have on our gut health as part sure. of that consideration, right? So that's, 
that is one of the one of the things that you know I'm always thinking about. But I do think we have to be concerned about what Claire has said, which is which is reinfection and right. making sure that we are aware of the tools we have available to us to take care of ourselves, right? So there are actually two different frameworks that I want to run by the two of you that we've developed here at Take Bootcamp that we're going to start actually releasing on a YouTube channel that Matt and I are starting soon. We actually built a um, we built a studio recently in my office and I had to renovate it before we even had our first taping because we had a flood in my office. So uh, we've had now two renovations on a, on a, on a podcast studio before we, before we taped our first episode. Uh, but the first thing that we, we've identified as part of doing our work with building out the tick bite blueprint was that there seems to be this pattern that we can use to protect ourselves um, from getting sick from a tick bite. And we call that our acre formula, where we, we develop tools on how to avoid ticks, meaning knowing where ticks are mm -hmm. and how to protect ourselves from coming in contact with ticks, um, either by avoiding these shady and and moist places where they find them, you know, where they find themselves, or of course um, using using different types of of tools to uh, repel the ticks from you, um, mm -hmm. either on your clothing or on your body or both. Um, and we call that the avoid part of our, our protocol. Then of course there's the checking, right? And regularly checking. And one of the things that I do here as a resident of Long Island is I check myself every day, at least twice a day in the morning before I get dressed. And then at night before I go to bed and, and we have a very specific protocol on how to check. Um, then of course we have the R, which is knowing how to properly remove a tick and making sure that you have the tools available to you. And actually here in my house, we have tick kits all over the house, so that if um, so that if when we find a tick on us or on one of our pets, uh, that we know how to remove it quickly and properly. And of course, if you're checking, you are finding them very often, quite frankly. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the early intervention phase of our of our um, protocol, which is what are you going to do to treat the area where you're bitten, um, and what are you going to do to treat your your body to support your immune system, whether using antibiotics or or other tools uh, after you get bit. So, um, Caitlin, I'd like your reaction first as a uh, as a tick bite professional. What do you think about the acre formula? I love it. I love it. I think it's fantastic because that's the real life practical stuff that every person should know, not just people who are living in Long Island and not just your friends or not just people listening to this podcast. Literally, that should be public knowledge right that should be something that maybe is taught to kids in schools you know that should be something that's like part of a education process with a primary care provider because if we can prevent these illnesses that's that's the gold standard right claire like you had said before like our healthcare system right it would be so wonderful if we could just prevent these things and there these steps are really simple to do everybody can do these, right? And if you can't do it for yourself, you know, and you have a care provider to, you know, help care for you, they could, they could do these steps. These are not complicated, right? They're, they're not. So totally Claire, what's your reaction to, to the acre formula as somebody who would be concerned about, about um, get, getting reinfected? Yeah. I think I probably have a little bit of a different perspective just because I, number one, I live in Utah. So Utah has ticks, but not the way that you guys have ticks. So I'm a farmer and I get flack on my social media all the time for people like, why are you standing in your grassy field and you have Lyme disease? Like, what are you smoking? And I'm like, <laughs> 
there's no ticks in my grassy field because we have death by winter for our ticks. Okay. If I want to get bit by a tick, I have to go in the mountains. Granted, I don't want to get bit by a tick, but I do go in the mountains a lot. And so that's when I follow, um, you know, what you just laid out for us where, you know, we check for ticks and we're pretty good about, you know, making sure you wear long pants and you're, you're doing all the preventative stuff. The one thing I would add is I'm more of the natural mindset because of everything I've been through with Lyme. It's so important to be encouraging people to protect their health, whether they get bit by a tick or not. So that includes drinking yeah. pure water, having a clean diet, making sure that we're eating as organic as we can, giving up things like sugar, soda pop, um, coffee, alcohol. I know people hate it when I say that, but man, it will make a difference in your health. All, For sure. Yeah, all of the preventative stuff of just taking care of our bodies, getting enough sleep, especially the young people in this world, they don't understand that, yes, you do have to sleep or you're going to get sick. Don't sit on your phone for five hours at a time because that can make you sick. So doing all these extra preventative things that is really just healthy lifestyle, but we've kind of come away from it because we have instant everything. We have social media this instant. We have fast food. We have instant gratification, instant entertainment. Everything is instant, but health is just a beautiful lifestyle that we can shape for ourselves. And as we choose to align ourselves with healthy lifestyle, we will stay healthy and there will be less and less need to go to the doctors and, you know, need for the medications and the antibiotics. So I would just add to what you were saying with all the preventative stuff, healthy lifestyle is crucial to staying well, whether you get bit by a tick or not, I was never bit by a tick and I lost my life for so many years. So be healthy, live healthy. That's huge preventative care that everyone needs to be aware of nowadays. Amen. I, I, I love that. And I, and I, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. But unfortunately, our society is becoming less and less healthy, getting less and less sleep, getting less and less mm -hmm. exercise, getting fatter and fatter and fatter. And, you know, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, our, our immune system is more likely to be able to manage these microbes if we are engaging in a healthy lifestyle. And I hope you can get that billboard out there, Claire, and get everybody to, you know, eat eat uh, better food, get more sleep and get more exercise because they certainly would be in a, in a better place. But I have another I have another framework that uh, I want to discuss with the two of you. Another part of what Matt and I, and I are going to be developing on our, on our YouTube channel, and that's going to be our PARM formula. We, you know, we, we're constantly looking for patterns and then trying to turn the patterns, the frameworks and ultimately formulas, right? Because you want to make it easier for people to get through this journey. And um, you two are so smart. I want to get your reaction to another formula, which is our, which is our, um, which is our Parm formula or a Parmesan foot. Matt and I are both Italian Americans. We have to, we have to bring, we have to bring Parmesan into this, right? So uh, what we've seen uh, with the folks who have been successful in healing from Lyme disease is we see this pattern developing, right? We see folks going through this phase of prehabilitation, which is the P in our palm, uh, where, they're, where they're getting their sleep in order, for example, and they're getting their diet in order, for example, and they're getting their... Um, they're, they're, they're getting their movement in order and they're just getting themselves ready for the battle. It's almost like going through basic training if you're in the service, right? And, uh, and then after the, 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 the prehabilitation phase, they go through the assist phase. We don't like the word kill. We call it assist. We're assisting our immune system because it's ultimately your immune system that's going to win the battle. But sometimes we have to support our immune system by, by reducing the microbe load. And there are a number of different tools that people use to reduce the microbe load. So we call that the A phase of our. 
Then we then we have our R, which is our rehabilitation phase of this, um, where you're now you're now rebuilding the body that has been in many ways uh, broken down by either the bugs that were that were uh, in your system or the way you treated the bugs that were in your system, right? And then we ultimately have our our M, which is our maintenance phase, where we now have to take all these tools that we've developed along the course of this journey, and we now live the beautiful lifestyle that that Claire has just been talking about, where we're now maintaining our life. But we also have this toolbox with us. So if we start to feel badly, we're now more in tune with our, our body and in tune with our emotions. And we know the things that we individually need in order to be able to be healthy and be able to overcome these things. So so Ken, let me ask you first, what do you think about the Parmesan plat, uh, framework that I've come up with? And, um, and do you think that's consistent with what you've seen um, people use successfully on their healing journey? I think so. Um, run me through each letter again, like a quick. P is prehabilitation. Prehabilitation, okay. A is assist or what so most would call the kill phase where you're, yep, you're, got you're it. using tools to reduce the microbes in your body. Yeah. Uh, R is rehabilitate. Well, you're going through this phase of rehabilitation. And I do yep. want to talk to you about physical and emotional rehabilitation. Yep. And then M is the maintenance phase. So we, we don't either relapse or have a backslide. And of course, part of uh, part of maintenance is also making sure that you're using smart um, techniques so that you're not getting reinfected. So we, we're concerned about both reinfection, which our acre formula should help you with, right. or with having a relapse because you may be backsliding and engaging in maybe unhealthy behaviors that you know some people might be able to engage in, but going out and getting all liquored up, for example, is really not a wise thing for someone to do if they had been on a Lyme disease journey. So it's, it's prehabilitation, assist, rehabilitation, and then maintenance. So is there a reason why you would prehabilitate before assisting? What's the, or yeah, is there I, a, so, like, is so that what, where the tick bite comes in? I guess. I'm you know, just... no, what, what we're seeing is that, you know, when you're going through this kill phase, it's really rough on your body. Right. Mm, and, mm -hmm. and you really need to get your, get yourself ready for this battle. The, 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 the assist phase of the kill phase is really the battle. Right. Right. And what we've seen is too many people get to kill and kill too aggressively uh, and that in many cases, that makes them sicker. We, we, we actually interviewed, uh, you know, one really, well, actually two people that really come to mind. One woman was one of the Lyme disease leaders in, in France, and she got very, very sick because she killed too early and too quickly. She was like, let me get this over with and, you know, and, and no pain, no gain and got very, very sick because she killed too aggressively and too soon. And we had another, we had, we had another one of our guests, and again, another one of our favorite people. Uh, who was actually who actually became wheelchair bound, mm. not because of the disease itself, but because of the way he aggressively or too aggressively treated. And this is a, this is a guy who was like a Division One Uber athlete who went from that phase to killing too aggressively and ultimately becoming wheelchair bound. So we we just think that it's you know like if you're going to go into a battle and, and and killing these bugs is a battle, you want to get yourself you want to get yourself ready for that. And some of that is having make your detox pathways open. Some of that is making sure that you're having the proper you know and, and movement is one of the ways you do that. Making sure that you're 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 you know you're not putting things into your body that that are that are not going to be supporting you 
and and, and not supporting this uh, this kill phase. You know, finding out whether or not you you know you want to you know, make sure that you're not living in a moldy environment, and maybe maybe testing your metals, so you know, heavy metals, to make sure you know you, you you don't have these other immunosuppressive things that are going on, and you know, and sort of clearing that out before you now start to kill. And then of course there's that sleep piece, right, to make sure that you know um, you can you're you know you're there are a lot of things that are happening with, with sleeping and resting, but, you know, part of what we know you need to be able to do is, is you need to um, have the, the, the neural drainage that takes place when you sleep and it doesn't take place unless you are sleeping. Right? So getting all those pieces in place before you go into this battle where you're now going to start to, you know, take some of these, whether they be antibiotics or other tools that are going to be very difficult on your body. If you don't have all of these other pathways, um, you know, uh, ready to go. So, sorry, I'm going to just jump in. Please. <laughs> with, okay, so the only thought that I have on this is that this sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like this is targeted towards the population who have more of um, kind of a chronic profile. For sure. Right? Not necessarily targeted to, to acute stages. Absolutely. Or other tick bite things that could be acute, like Ehrlichia, anaplasmosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, because those you wouldn't want to wait to treat. I, I, yeah, I should I should help you with with one thing, right? We 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 don't believe Lyme disease is an acute disease here at Tick Boot Camp. Uh, we 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 believe that uh, that Lyme disease is a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. Okay. That, that if that if you have a chronic presentation of some of these other tick diseases, then you may have Borreliosis or anaplasmosis or you know, the, and those 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 acute diseases really should not be should not be brought into the Lyme disease conversation because you're right, they should be treated right away, and it's likely they the best treatment should be antibiotics, right? That's different than what we define as Lyme disease, and with the got it. 400 or so people that we've we've worked with, uh, we think you know one of the biggest problems that we have in the Lyme disease community is we have a definitional problem, right? And for example, one of the things yeah. that that uh, Alan McDonald uh, argued on our podcast, and we've had him on a couple of times, we love uh, Dr. McDonald, is is he said we should be divorced from the term Lyme disease uh, because. Um, you know, it, it, it has so many defin definitions, it doesn't have a definition, right? Mm. And, you know, and one of the things we had observed since we had that conversation with Dr. Uh, Dr. McDonald is everybody seems to have their own definition of Lyme disease. CDC has their definition, Rawls has his definition, Harwitz has his definition. Every, you know, everybody's got their own definition, right? right? And, and, and I've had, I've had, you know, doctors wave their, their finger definition. at me <laughs> and say, Richard, Lyme disease is an infection caused by Borrelia burgdorferi, and I was like, "No, it isn't. No, it's not." You know, well, that's the CDC definition. I don't care. It's not what it is. You know, so we, I, you know, we've had these debates, right? So we've decided here at Tick Boot Camp is we're going to take control of the definition. The definition is a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. If you're not chronically ill, you don't have Lyme disease in our view, right? So mm -hmm. I should I should have clarified that first. So yes, our okay. formula is designed to assist people who are being failed by the medical system when they're chronically ill. We have a great acute care system. And you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about your story so far, Caitlin, is that you're, you're the perfect example of an acute care system working really well for you and a chronic care system really failing you, right? Big time, and, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's, you know, and when you, when you were talking about, you know, the term that you, you uh, was it moral conflict or was it, what was the term that you were, you were giving me with, 
with the burn, the, the pre-burnout phase where- Oh, moral injury. Yeah, the moral injury, right? I mean, of course, of course, people in the medical community are morally injured. Why? Because the because the because the insurance system only allows you to spend fifteen minutes with somebody who's really sick. How right. can that work, right? So it you, doesn't. But you 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 all have a a heart for caring for people. You become medical professionals because you want to help people, and then you don't have enough time to do it. Even though if you had more time, you could, right? And right. So. So I, I know I'm going off on a rant here, but so let, let me bring it back to our palm here. Uh, yes, the, the 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 short answer to your question is yes. We only define Lyme disease as a chronic condition, and we believe palm is a is a framework that may work for folks when trying to get through this chronic disease. Makes so your reaction, Kate? Oh, my reaction. I mean. Again, there's, you know, it's tough because there's not one, I don't know that I believe that there's one specific way to do anything. I think that okay. that could be a framework that could work for somebody, right? Everybody who's on their path to wellness has to find the path that works for them. And the tough thing about being a chronic patient is that you may try things over and over and over again. And it may or may not work, right? So some people say trial and error. I think it's like trial and collect information. So it's like trial and inform, right? You have to start somewhere. Um, that could be a place for someone to start. So if they are chronically ill at this point, you know, they're past that acute stage, um, you know, and they want to start with a rest and rehabilitation and reset to kind of like clear the decks of other things, then, you know, that could be a good place to start. Okay. I'm so not what's your reaction it. to our, our palm for formula? I love it. I think it's fantastic. Um, so Lyme disease is a war. It's a battle. So when you are going into battle, you have to have your battle tactics. So I think you outline the battle tactics really beautifully. And it's not that each of these steps is going to look the same for each of us, but it's that these are like the hardcore steps we need to follow. I wish I would have known this when my mom got sick and when I got sick. So first you have the prehabilitation. Okay. You don't go into a war stripped naked with no weapons. That's just not how you go into a war, right? You got to put your armor on and you got to take up your weapons of war. So this is where your prehabilitation is. So I've worked with a lot, not worked with just so everyone knows, I'm not a doctor here. I'm just a person that talks to lots of sick people and I love it. So <laughs> uh, I've talked to lots of sick people and a lot of them will get on really heavy duty herbs or really heavy duty treatment. And it makes them so sick that they're going to die from treatment before they even get better from the treatment. And so what I tell them is you got to get your detox channels open. You got to make sure you're going to the bathroom. You got to make sure you're eating organic. You got to make sure that you're getting enough sleep. All those things that I just talked about you got to start your prehabilitation or you're not going to be ready. I take about four dropper fulls full of cryptolepsis for twice a day for three days, every single month. And that's really, really intense. Like most Lyme people would be like, Claire, how do you do it? Okay. Because I worked like for years and years and years to get to the point where I could take that much cryptolepsis. I would never recommend that to someone who is just beginning their Lyme journey because it would straight up kill them. Like that would be so difficult on somebody. So you got to get all of your detox channels open. You got to be ready to go into war. Okay. Then your assist is perfect because just like you said, that's your killing phase. So you got to kill the bacteria. But then I would also add to that, that you have to do detox protocols. You have to cleanse and detox. 
Nobody told me and my mom that when we first got sick. So we went on this intense kill protocol and I'm pretty sure it almost killed us <laughs> because we had no idea that we had to be detoxing and that you could do things to cleanse your liver or to cleanse your kidneys. We had no idea. And so your assist, it needs to be twofold kill and detox because if you don't detox, you're going to be herxing. It's going to be intense and you're going to have a really hard time. And then your rehabilitate. Obviously, it's the same things. You got to take all the things that you lost and you have to gain them again. So something I lost was muscle mass. And I realized I had to get outside and I had to move my body. We have a phrase in my family. It's your duty to move your booty. Okay. Get up and move your body <laughs> because you have to rehabilitate. You have to gain everything that you lost. And with Lyme, you're going to lose everything. Okay. You're going to lose your physical ability. You're going to lose friends. You're going to lose family. You're going to lose um, emotional things that you should be having that you're not having. You're going to lose so much. So you have to rehabilitate all those things. Get back out there, get your body moving, find good friends, find people who love you. Tell yourself you're beautiful when you wake up in the morning. You have to do all those things to get better from this really awful thing that you've been through. So that's the rehabilitate. And then the maintenance where obviously you can't just quit. You can't do all these things. Oh, I'm better. And then you quit because then you'll get sick again. And by your definition, Rich, you'll totally get sick again if you don't maintain. And I also just want to encourage anybody who is following this model that if you go down again, it's okay. That's like normal, I feel like. Like Lyme disease is like a dumpster fire and a dumpster fire. Like you never know what's gonna happen. And so as you're going through this, it's not gonna be a step one, two, three, four. I'm complete, it's great. You're gonna have ups, you're gonna have downs. It's not linear, it's gonna be a mess. Life is a mess, it's supposed to be a mess. That's how we learn, that's how we grow. I Overall, I love this and I think it's fantastic. It's gonna help a lot of people, Rich. So let me let me give you another another thing to think about, right? Because uh, because within each of these steps of the framework, and it is going to look different for every single person, right? There has to be flexibility where you're learning about what your body needs and you're learning about what your brain or emotions need, right? And you know, one of the things that I that I've had some pushback on when we've talked about the 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 emotional element of prehabilitation and whether or not we should be doing neural retraining which caitlin had talked about as a necessary element of, of of her healing was a lot of people have said you know i couldn't do another thing right i really couldn't do another thing and and what one of the things that we want to emphasize at the prehabilitation phase is you do have to get yourself emotionally ready for, ready for a battle as well and mm -hmm. you have to recognize that perhaps some of the neural pathways that you've developed during the course of your life are not serving you and your immune system. And it's something you have to start to begin to focus on. And at the very least, you know, we'd urge you to, you know, find a, a uh, mental health um, practitioner to help you to work on some of these issues preliminarily and help you to get through this battle and help you to, you know, to help deal with your emotions. And again, there are some, there are some tools that, you know, that, that folks are thinking about in this phase with working with therapists, working with um, with um, hypnotists, working, you know, maybe even dealing with some of the early protocols. But then at the rehab phase, Claire, you have to go through a neural retraining, right? Your yep. neural pathways have been altered by the, the experience, the traumatic experience of being sick, the traumatic experience of being gaslit, the tra traumatic experience of working in a medical system that's not designed for chronic illness. And bugs in your brain, reorganizing your neural pathways. I mean, you have this whole combination of things that are happening 
And, 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 you know, Caitlin, I think really beautifully discussed this. She had to use neural retraining in order to become, uh, to, you know, to become uh, symptom free. Right. So Caitlin, give me your reaction to the, to the, the, to the emotional element or the neurological and brain elements of prehabilitation and rehabilitation. So prehabilitation, you know, is interesting because, you know, I don't know, it depends where everybody is, you know, everybody's on a different For sure. like part of their journey when they're coming to this, right? Like when they come to this podcast, when they find your parm, when they find, you know, or they decide like, this is the the way that I'm going to treat, this is going to be my path. These are my steps. So it's very hard to kind of speak to it in a black and white way, right? Because the prehabilitation will look differently for everybody. You know, if, if you have been sick for six months and you've done no antibiotics, only herbal treatments, and you're 90% better, your prehabilitation may look different than, you know, someone who was born with congenital Lyme and has never known wellness. And, you know, I don't know, like, absolutely. and it's not to judge that one is, it's not to judge them in any direction, right? Like these are non-directional, non-directional things. Yeah. This is the judgment-free zone, right? When when you would ask before whether or not you could, (laughs) you could share too much, not on this podcast. You cannot overshare on this podcast. (laughs) Okay. So I, I think that, I think that they're both, important, you know, from the mental aspect, right? Because it is a process. And as you go through, if you do something like a PARM step, right, then you would prehab. And then as you go through a treating phase, and then you have to rehab, um, you will be a different person than you were before, right? Every experience through these journeys will change you in some way. I love Um, that not all bad. Some are good. I have patients that, you know, find themselves, you know, for the first time in their lives going through Lyme treatment, you know, they're forced in a way, you know, to confront things. Or I find patients that, you know, reach like just a different level of um, well-being and peace in their life, you know, healing from things that they didn't even know that they needed to you know, because this process can really put you in front of things that you didn't know that you needed to face. So talk to us about that because we're going we're gonna to start winding on the podcast now, Caitlin. Mm. Talk to us about how your personal journey has been transformational for you. How did you learn um, about what your gifts and talents were? How did you learn about your purpose and how has your how do you, how are you feeling fulfilled by pursuing your your life as a Lyme practitioner in a way that you would not have uh, been fulfilled had you not gone first on this journey of be, becoming a trained medical professional and ultimately uh, specializing in the Lyme uh, um, arena? So many things to say. You know, there's so many things to share. Um, Please say them it's all. A, it's a great question. I hope I could answer all of them. So, okay. I almost want you to repeat the question because I had like a thousand thoughts come through my head and then so they I'll, all I'll, fell I'll out. I'll break it down into two pieces. I, I, want, okay. I want you to share with us. You, you, began to, you began to foreshadow this question where you said a lot of your patients 
mm. have um, have learned about themselves and learned about who they are and learned about um, you know their talents by going through the Lyme journey. Got it. So okay. I want to I wanna know your I want to know about what you learned about you, right? Because this Got whole it. journey that you've been sharing with us is one where you were understanding that you are a healer, that God made you to be a healer. You thought you were going to be a dancer. You thought you were going to be an athlete. And you are those things, but that's not what you were made to do. You were made to help people to heal, right? So talk right. to us about how you learned that, you learned about that element of what you were created to do by going on your med your personal medical journey. So I think that, you know, my personal medical journey, you know, was primed and started like back with that original trauma, Right. So if we kind of fast forward through those two traumas and I'm working as a nurse and I'm finding Lyme patients through the Hudson Valley, that upstate New York, Connecticut area. And as I'm finding these patients now, this is like, this is such a full circle thing to say. I start listening to a podcast because I'm driving from house to house and I love, love, love stories. So I love to listen, like I love the medium of just putting earbuds in and just driving and seeing patient to patient. I started listening to a Lyme disease podcast and I realized that in listening to this podcast, that my superpower, right, if you will, and I'm, you know, no, saying this facetiously because I because I, I don't think I'm super powerful, but no, my you, you super are. my superpower, believe it or not, even though I can't remember the questions that you're asking me, my superpower is usually listening. I love to listen. I love to hear what people are saying to me. I love to hear the narrative and the story and to gain an understanding of what it is that people are experiencing and going through. And so I think that over the years, kind of using my superpower of listening and really pulling information in down deep where I can understand it and digest it and think what does this person really need? What are they really saying? What are they really, really telling me? I started to kind of develop this understanding of kind of the pulse of what was happening with Lyme patients. And that's what had motivated me, right? To going into treating Lyme patients. Now, now that I treat Lyme patients as a nurse practitioner, and this is, you know, what I do full time, I see patients coming into my office, you know, for you know, an illness that they've had for three months to an illness that they've had for 20 years to, you know, whatever you run the gamut. I've, I, I see it, right. There are common themes, right. Like you had talked about in some of the development of this podcast, right. Like there are common themes that you see. And one of the common themes was the experiences that people are going through with navigating the healthcare system with having challenges and difficulties with families and friends and coworkers and loved ones and having difficulty, you know, trusting their bodies, you know, that their bodies were betraying them. And, you know, so there's all these common themes. So long story short, I think to myself, okay, and now I'm working with a population that I feel deeply passionate about helping. And, and I'm doing this job as a nurse practitioner, which I feel deeply passionate about doing and what else can I do? So I decide to actually go and do a PhD. Okay. It's not done. It's like 90% done. Fingers crossed it gets done this year, 2024. I'm just going to put it out to the universe. Let's get this thing done. But I 
I find that I'm like, okay, there's got to be like, what's the next step? What's the next level? How can I push myself to do more for this community? How can I push myself to be a better contributing member to, you know, this population? And okay, so I go, I, I start this PhD process. So in it's developing this, a doctor. Yes, that's right. Of sorts. And um, so I decided to do the PhD. So the PhD is researching um, the relationship between uncertainty and illness and PTSD symptoms and chronic Lyme disease. And it will, once I finish the, the PhD, it will be published. I have to tell you that the data collection is done. The analysis is done. I'm just in the throes of writing it and having advisors pass pass it through hopefully <laughs> 2024 here we come but uh yeah so it's you know I hope to be able to continue to contribute to literature I hope to be able to continue to do research you know that's the point of this PhD and to represent patients and to do research that's needed to lend a voice to the Lyme community. And I, I have to thank the Lyme community, you know, for participating in this research. It was done for everybody, you know, with chronic Lyme. And, and I had a huge amount of participation, which is um, amazing. And I feel very grateful to have such willing, willing people to, to join the study and to do it. Oh, and, and it's really cool. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact, uh, before we get to the second part of my question, which um, I forgot. So don't worry, I'll get I, I <laughs> with my with my superpower uh, listening. Yeah, but it's but it's really important. It's really important for us to understand the importance of research, right? Because yeah. um, the reason clinical practitioners feel handcuffed by how they can or cannot treat people with Lyme disease is because they're only allowed if they want to keep their license and they don't want to be sued. To, uh, to use uh, diagnostic and treatment protocols that are defined as generally accepted medical practices. And generally accepted medical practices are defined by the research findings of researchers. And unfortunately, for too long, doctors were either afraid to treat Lyme disease patients or they were limited in the way they were treating Lyme disease patients because they didn't have research to support their clinical um, diagnostic and treatment instincts. And because of that, they either weren't treating them or they were finding themselves before licensing boards or courts being sued as a result of treating their patients. So let's not lose sight of the importance of not just being a good listener and Caitlin learning that that is her superpower, but she also has a second superpower. And that is that she has the ability to be a, um, a researcher who will be publishing protocols that will give practitioners the clinical freedom they need to treat their patients the way the patients need to be treated. So talk to us about that, Caitlin. So the research that I'm, I, you know, ideally will be publishing once this PhD is done is really focused on uh, PTSD, right? And the patient experience. So, you know, if anybody listening to this did participate in, I just want to give you a shout out. I don't know who you are. They were all anonymous, just FYI, and I'll never know who you are. And you don't, don't reach out to me and tell me that you did it. You know, I don't need to know. I just, just know that I appreciate that you did do it. Um, so it really looked at uh, kind of three things. So it looked at, you know, the presence of uncertainty in illness 
you know, in, in the adult chronic Lyme disease population. Then it looked at the prevalence of PTSD in the population. And then it looked at the relationship between the two. Um, there was a chronic Lyme disease questionnaire with asking more kind of pointed um, questions that are specific to this population about, you know, have you ever felt betrayed? Did you ever have negative medical, you know, provider experiences or interactions? Um, and all that information will be detailed out, you know, once it's once it's published. But I do think that um, people will feel validated by the results. I think that um, this community will not be a surprise, but I think it will be um, maybe surprising to people who are outside of this community. Because when I developed this, I, I did it semi based on how they look at other chronic illnesses, right? So other chronic illnesses have been studied with PTSD. Um, so this will not be the first chronic illness studied, but uh, the results are different. There is something different about this population. So let me get to my the second part of my question, which is mm -hmm. how has the discovery of your superpower, which I love the use, the use of that description, and the work you, that you're doing with the chronic Lyme disease community been fulfilling to you personally? And I and I and I and I and I wanted to find that um not just emotionally, but also spiritually. Yeah, I think I mean. It's fulfilling because at the end of the day, I get to do what I set out and wanted to do, right? So I set out, you know, to do something to fulfill myself, to fulfill that trauma response of nobody took care of me. And so now I get to turn around and take care of, right? So it really, you know, is a pleasure to take care of my patients. It is a pleasure to listen to them and talk with them and get to know them and so it is like, um, it's almost like a little selfish in a way, you know, in that I get to do the thing that fills me up, right? While providing care. And of course, what, what always fills us up, Caitlin, is what God created us to do, right? If we do what we've been created to do, it fills us up, right? And 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 in, in general terms, you know, one of our basic human needs is to serve. But even more importantly, it's to serve within the context of what we've been created to do, right? That's, that is what our identity is. That's how we define our purpose. And ultimately, that's what's going to fill, uh, fulfill us, right? And I think what's been so beautiful about this story is now coming to full circle and, and winding down here is that although there was things that were happening in your life that uh, at the time seemed to be terrible things, like suffering a, a leg injury or, or going through a surgical procedure or losing your dream of becoming a, um, you know, a, a, a professional dancer. As it turns out, none of those things were, were, were bad. They were actually were all good and they were important foundational elements of, of building, not only just directing you to where you were supposed to be, but building you into the superhero that you become and allow you to do things that no one else in the world can do. So give me your reaction to that. That's incredibly kind. <laughs> and I appreciate that. No, I mean, that makes me smile. That makes me feel, um, that just makes me feel warm and fuzzy, truthfully. That's well, I, uh, very kind. Thank you. Well, I, I just want you to know, as we wind this down, Claire and I see you. 
You know, and I think it's important for people to know that they're seen when they're doing beautiful work and they are the superheroes that people like you are. So thank you for doing all the things that you're doing and and know that you are seen by us. And this has really been a beautiful experience for me. I, I won't speak for Clara, I'll let her speak for herself. Before I ask you the very last question that we ask everyone now in the, in the Tick Booth Camp podcast, I'm actually going to ask you and Clara this. Um, the first, uh, the first, but I'm going to ask you first, Caitlin. What are the three low cost or no cost um, recommendations that you would make to for people to utilize when they're on a Lyme disease journey? Um, low cost or no cost? Uh, I think that meditation or some finding moments in your day to find stillness or pause or silence um, can make a world of difference in just stopping yourself from being on the, maybe the hamster wheel of, of sickness and, and thought. And um, so calming, calming your brain. You believe that it's important to use tools that will calm your brain while you're on, on the treatment path. I love it. Next. Um, find your social supports whether that's within your family or a co-worker or a fellow friend who also has a chronic illness or some sort of online or social media or local support group find your supports love that uh, it, it is it is very important to be supported and to communicate to people that are close to you what your needs are so that so that they understand what we need and we understand what they need, whether that be again, people in your family, people in your in your social circle, or finding people in the Lyme community. We always want to be careful that we're in healthy Lyme groups, not just with folks who are unfortunately sometimes not in a healthy place and can be triggering to us. Okay. And and number three, Caitlin. Number three, just scheduling. Um scheduling some sort of self-care right so some people you know do meditation for self-care and you can use those kind of stillness protocols and things but you know find a list of three things that you can do to just take care of yourself and actually just schedule it even if they're really um not the things that you used to do find new things there are things Okay, so so you're you're arguing that it's not just self care, but it's scheduling self care as part of your daily, weekly, or regularly scheduling However, things right. that 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 are going to serve you that you enjoy that are hopefully going to give you a break from all the hard work that you're doing in uh, overcoming the challenges that are created by Lyme disease. Yep. Okay, Claire Dalton. You can please give us your three low cost or no cost recommendations for folks who are on the Lyme disease journey. Okay. So my first one, I'm going to align with Caitlin here and definitely meditation would be my top one. So for me, that looks like prayer and spending time in God's word. Um, I'm a farmer. So a lot of the times it looks like going in my field and just being in that stillness because there's power in nature. And so meditation, take time to be still, take time to realize that it's okay to just be calm in your mind and don't let your meditation time be sitting on the floor and staring at a wall because you're so panicked about everything that is going on in your life. Because for a while, that was my meditation. Make sure you schedule that time for your meditation, your time with God, your time to be still, your time to zone into the peace that you can find. So that's my first thing. 
Um, my second thing is diet because I'm such a food nerd. And that's been like one of my really proud things is learning how to cook and eat really good food, even though I feel like crap and nothing, nothing made me feel good after eating it for so long. So get on a diet where you feel good when you're eating again and you're eating healthy so that your body can function. Those nutrients are so crucial. People always kind of poke at me when I eat because they're like, Claire, you act like eating is like the best thing in the world Like because I lost that and now I have it back. So eat healthy so you can get it back. Um, so do you, do you have any recommendations of how you're going to define eating healthily? You know, for example, I think one of the things that Tom Bilyeu in, in, in his podcast argued is that the, the the closer we are to eating food in its natural form, meaning meat should look like meat and, and vegetables should look like vegetables. And you know, you know, the closer we are to to food in its in its natural form is the way that we should be eating. Or do you have some other uh, perspective on it? Yeah. So I'm a farmer. Okay. So I got Lyme disease. I was going to be a vocal performance major. I went from wearing sequin dresses all the time to wearing mucking boots and <laughs> heavy jackets. Okay. Why am I a farmer? Well, not because I like hanging out in cow manure. Okay. I'm a farmer because I like food. <laughs> okay. So make sure that the food that you're eating is organic. It's pure. It's non-GMO. There's no extra hormones or chemicals that are being sprayed on it. You want your food, just like what you just said, as close to nature as you can possibly get it. So talk to your local farmer, find out what their growing processes are. The best thing you can do is buy local. And I will always tell people to buy local because I want my local people to come by from my farm, but <laughs> <laughs> buy local because it's so good for your health. I've been on every diet under the sun and diets are just not sustainable. Your diet should be eating organic and give up all the processed junk. And yes, that totally includes sugar and then learn how to cook in a way that makes you happy with your okay. organic natural food. Okay. And, and number three, number three is make sure you take time to laugh and surround yourself with people that make you laugh. Because I think that's something I lost along my journey. And the more that I realize that I'm surrounding myself with people who are healthful and happy and joyful, and they're people that are healthy for me, we laugh a lot. Those are the people that are good for me. So make sure you're laughing. Laughter is the best medicine. So yeah, those are my top three. You know, and and that's that's it's an interesting interesting perspective. I we I mean we've learned that on this podcast from several folks that there are behaviors that we can engage in that are immunosuppressive, but there are actually there are behaviors you can engage in in um, that are uh, immunosupportive uh, or immunoenhancing. And actually, laughter actually does enhance your immune system, right? And one of the things that Ali Hilfiger shared with us when. Um, when she was on this podcast was one of the most important things she did on her healing journey is she found movies and particular actresses that she found to be funny. And, and she would regularly watch these movies and a particular actress that she was, that she was, she found to be very funny, but she would watch these movies while she was going on her healing journey. And she knew that was something that was helpful to her healing. So, and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of data on that as well. So yeah. do things that will make you laugh 
so that you're you're further supporting your immune system. So and I would even add to that, learn how to laugh at yourself. Like I feel so awkward in my life. Like I'm just this awkward 20-something <laughs> year old girl. And then I realized that I can either be awkward or I can be absolutely hilarious. And they look exactly the same, but it's just how I'm looking at it. So learn how to laugh at yourself because we're all awkward, especially in Lyme disease. Life is awkward and it's uncomfortable. So just learn how to laugh at yourself. You'll be so much happier, even through all this hell that we go through that is Lyme disease. Well, I, I love that. So I, I can't thank you enough. Soon to be Dr. Caitlin Duty for uh, sharing this really powerful podcast with us and, and, and your really powerful journey. And I thank you for all the great work you're doing for the folks in the community. And Claire Dalton, love you as always. Thank you for uh, co-hosting with me. Uh, you're so much better than Matt. I can't even count the ways and, uh, you know, I know, I know folks are going to love uh, the contributions that you're not only making to this community, but you're making to the larger community with your podcast. So thank you both for spending time with us here at Tick Bootcamp. Thanks so much, Rich. And thank you, Caitlin. It's been a pleasure interviewing you. Oh, my gosh. It was such a pleasure, you guys. Thank you for having me.